0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K.
1: We tried to find the questions that people hadn't answered yet. And one of the things we just couldn't find a lot of evidence on was actually how fast ransomware encrypts. How long do you actually have once ransomware starts? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast,
2: where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Ryan Kovar joins us. He's a distinguished security strategist at Splunk and the leader of Surge. He's talking about the speed of ransomware. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we've got some follow-up. A listener named Josh wrote in.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, Josh is our email guest of the day. (laughs) Is that right? Yes, because he also provided us with our catch of the day.
2: Ah, okay. Our cup runneth over. Yes. Courtesy of our, our fine listener, Josh. Yes. So Josh writes in and says, hi, Joe and Dave, binge listening from pod one and almost caught up. Here are a bunch of random, relatable experiences I would like to share. I always thought 2FA was just a big scam by tech giants to get even more info on us. First, it started with KBA, that's knowledge-based authentication, and I didn't want to give them my elementary school, but I knew I would never remember a lie, so I did. Then it moved to wanting a phone number. This went through me sideways, and I have resisted giving it to many accounts that still prompt me every login to this day, not that they don't already have it. I did have to give it to BOA because they do SMS authentication frequently. Okay, that's Bank, a lot of alphabet. Bank of America, Bank I guess. Bank of America, yeah. yeah okay.
0: Text message authentication.
2: Yeah, SMSA is an extra thorn in my side because I work long hours in a facility that has uh, to RF, no cell reception or Wi-Fi. Right. Uh, so I literally have been on a stalemate call with BOA, unable to proceed with getting support on an issue because I cannot confirm the SMS code <laughs> while sitting at my PC looking at an issue online.
0: Josh works in a giant Faraday cage. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's right, as you do. <laughs> That's right. uh, or maybe down in a, uh, a, mo- a copper mine. <laughs> yes. So
0: I, I want to point out that, yeah. that Josh's fears about them about tech companies using your phone number are not unfounded. I think Twitter got dinged for this a couple of years ago,
2: right? Just, no, just recently. Just recently. They just settled with, I think it was, they settled with the Federal Trade Commission for a big pile of money because uh, they were claiming to their users that they needed their phone numbers for security. And uh, the reality was they were using it for, ad tracking.
0: Right. And so, Josh's fears are absolutely not unfounded here. Right. That is a, re- a per- not only a perfectly reasonable fear, but a legitimate fear that has actually happened.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So Josh goes on. He says, like Joe, I do not do any phone banking. It's not that I fear change. It's just that I minimize the attack vectors. If I don't have Cash App, Venmo, Google Pay, or give Cumberland Farms access to my bank account to save $0.10 cents a gallon, I can't lose money when they get breached. Google doesn't have any bank info, so I can't get billed for any Android fleeceware. Mm-hmm. Uh, at work, we have an Excel macro that converts bill of materials spreadsheets to a format the accounting database can use. So I constantly have to enable macros.
0: All right, there's another use case for macros.
2: Yep. To make things worse, all office documents are defaulting to need enable editing. So as employees are being conditioned to need to enable constantly, which defeats the purpose. Mm-hmm. LinkedIn pestered me so much about not having a profile pic, I took a screenshot of the empty profile pic and made it my profile pic just to shut them up. (laughs) That's awesome. This I love. Yes, (laughs) that's very clever. Uh, good, Good on you, Josh. You will be proud, though. I recently got a YubiKey and have been enabling that as my 2FA. Although I'm pretty upset at some of the roadblocks. Amazon does not have it integrated into their login. You have to use an authenticator app. Also, Yahoo will not let me activate it as my 2FA unless I give them my phone number. Right? Can I use Joe's press contact to pressure these? Lol.
0: Yes. I'll I'll see what I can do about
2: that. And then he says, years ago, I got an unsolicited tech support phone call for my Windows XP machine. I chuckled and played along. He verbally steered me to some deep buried system window that had a bunch of warning icons lit. There may have even been red flags. I wish I could remember better. He was explaining how bad this was and how he could fix it for a fee. I felt like I had enough, so I hung up, but apparently I played dumb pretty well. He immediately called back. I was in shock when I picked it up, and he was going full bore on how I needed to fix this. Yeah. I hung up again, and he proceeded to call three more times. I didn't bother to pick up.
0: Right. When these tech support scams call, they are persistent.
2: Oh, yeah. Now, they've got to think they have a live one on the line. Yeah. They're not giving up.
0: I mean, I told the story years ago. I may have even had Chris on the show when, with our system engineer, Chris Venghaus had, yeah. had a guy on there and just messed with the guy for like a day. And then when it came time to enter his credit card information, he, go, he turned the internet off on the VM, and uh, the guy was— so downtrodden. But the next day, the guy calls back and Chris tells him, look, you called into the Information Security Institute at Johns Hopkins University. You've been working on a VM all day. That <laughs> was a brand new had. machine. Right. And the guy was insistent that, no, there was a virus in the machine. Oh, wow. He was insistent. After Chris had told him everything, Wow! he still insisted.
2: Okay. Well, that's uh committed to the bit. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So Josh wraps up and says, thanks for all your hard work. Well, Josh, thank you for writing in. We appreciate it. Uh, I think Josh's experience here probably mirrors a lot of our listeners. Yes. We would love to hear from you. You can send us email. It's hackinghumans at com. All right, Joe, let's get to our stories here. Why don't you start things off for us?
0: Dave, my story comes from Leslie della's Bohr at KSHB in Kansas City, Missouri. You ever hmm. been to Kansas City, Missouri?
2: Uh, I believe so. I like Kansas City, Missouri.
0: It's okay, one of my favorite places. There used to be a great place there called the Tapcade, but hmm. they closed thanks to the COVID.
2: Is um, it a bar and arcade? Yeah,
0: it was oh, yeah. great. And they and if you went on the right night, they had open mic comedy. <laughs> okay. It was fantastic. Okay. But they didn't survive the pandemic. I just found oh, that out that's today. Bad. And I'm really sad about it because I I I have reason to get out to Kansas City from time to time. Uh-huh. So I have friends out there. Okay. Uh anyway, what's in the news lately, Dave?
2: What isn't in the news yeah, lately? Okay, Joe? let's let's not talk about it. <laughs> Can you that. be more specific? Yeah. Uh
0: shortages, right? Yeah. If I say shortage, what shortage do you think of?
2: So, well, we got all kinds of supply chain issues, but I suppose the one that's uh Making headlines right now is the problems with baby formula.
0: Right. And this article from from Leslie delos is about the baby food shortage and scams that are popping up around it. Ugh. There is a uh, technology consultant named Burton Kelso out in Kansas City uh-huh. uh, who is quoted heavily in this article. And he says, anytime there's a crisis, cyber criminals are always looking for a way they can make money. Yeah. Right? These guys are going to use the news to make a buck. Yeah. Hey, that's actually rolls off the tongue pretty well. I
2: might <laughs> me, use me the news make to make t-shirt. a T-shirt.
0: Yeah. Yep, make a T-shirt. <laughs> okay. But, you know, he, he points out it doesn't take much to take pictures of baby formula or even just copy them off the web, mm-hmm. right, and set up a website and say, uh, hey, we have tons of baby formula. We're ready to sell it to you. And people will pay for it and and no shipment ever arrives. Or maybe oh, there's a scam right. on, on board where
2: – Just taking advantage of people's desperation, yeah. which is literally where we are in some places where – you know, there's just not enough supply.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's not enough supply, and you know this could be a scam where they they send you some something in the mail that looks like so they have a tracking number.
2: Right. Right. Right.
0: Uh, and it could be could be nothing, and then they can you know when you dispute the charge, they they've already shut down and and taken the money and gone. Mm-hmm. These criminals are taking ads out on Google search. Right. Hmm. They're buying Google ads mm-hmm. because they know that those ads show up above. The search results. Right. Do you remember you remember the good old days of Google Dave <laughs> when the ads were on the right-hand side of the screen?
2: Right. Back when it was steam-powered?
0: Yes. Yes. I do remember those
2: days. Yes. Every
0: time you loaded up Google, you heard.
2: Right. Or it was like uh, the computer in the original Star Trek. It was like <laughs> working. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you heard solenoids uh, and gears turning. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's some things you can do to not be scammed here. Uh, you know, make sure the online retailer has been around. It's somebody you know. You know, Amazon is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Amazon actually does a really good job with customer service. If you, you call them up and you say...
2: No, I'm, I'm just, sorry, wait, wait. Call them up? Call up Amazon? I'm sorry, not what call them up. What is this
0: call? <laughs> <Just> I, <laughs> you go to their contact wait. page. If you can actually get them to call you, which is actually they they will call you and you really? get a customer service rep. Okay. Yeah, actually, my wife had a problem we bought, uh, we bought an umbrella, yeah right, for uh, a table, you know, one of those outdoor umbrellas. Yeah. And she bought the seven-and-a-half-foot one, and she tried it out, and she said, nope, I need to get the nine-and-a-half-foot one. Okay. So she tried to return it. Yeah. Uh, but she wanted to return it by—because uh, we weren't at home. So she wanted to take it home and return it over at the Whole Foods, which is something you can do. Right. Because Amazon owns Whole Foods now. Right. But she couldn't find a way in the phone, because she was just using her phone to do this, in the, in the app to return it. Oh. So she hit the contact button in the app. They called her up, and they said, uh, we can't figure out how to do this. Just keep the other umbrella. Keep keep the seven-and-a-half-foot umbrella, and uh, we'll put a credit on your account. Huh. And that was it.
2: Okay. Happy ending.
0: Yeah. Huh. And, you know, I, have, I actually think— Amazon does a good job of customer service this way. I mean, when you start talking like security issues, like Josh was saying, you can scream into the void on that one yeah, all, all day long and they won't listen to you. Right. But they do that well, I think. Mm. And they actually do their internal security pretty well as well. I'll, yeah. I'll say that. Uh, but remember, one of my, I'm, I'm digressing as I normally do, but I want everybody to remember security and privacy are not the same
2: thing. Right, right.
0: Uh, make sure you can find a little bit of history about this company, right? We all know Walmart.com, Amazon.com, uh, but Joe'sBabyFormula.com, <laughs> right? Right. Maybe you right. want to look at when that name was registered, <laughs> right. Right? If right? It was registered a week ago. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that kind of sounds like a scam, right? There are other things as well. People might be selling Baby Formula on social media. So look at the profile of the person,
2: mm-hmm. right?
0: Be wary of this. First off, I don't know that I would buy... Baby formula from somebody on social media. There, there's a lot of like uh, yard sale sites and things like that on on like Facebook and things. One of the rules they have is no food products, not even pet food, hmm. because there's no guarantee that what you're getting is safe. Yeah, right. That you know, there's not some wacko on there doing something, and they just want to eliminate that liability. And I wouldn't buy baby formula from somebody online in a marketplace, like, uh, like Facebook Marketplace. I just wouldn't do that. Yeah,
2: but I think we also need to put ourselves in the mindset of someone who's in a desperate situation. If if the if the shelves are bare at their local store— That, that is
0: an excellent point, Dave.
2: —and they have to feed their baby, yeah. uh, you can imagine someone being in this position of desperation and seeing something pop up and saying, well, this is the option I have. Right.
0: Yep, that's a good point.
2: You know, you and I are both in a situation where we could get in our car and right. drive— Wherever we needed to go to get the baby formula. That's correct. If you live in
0: inner city Baltimore, which is essentially a food desert to begin with, now you have to go find find baby formula.
2: Right. That's tough. Lots of people don't have those resources available. So just need to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anything else? Yeah, watch out for getting uh, strange demands like uh, for payment, like gift cards or cryptocurrencies. That's, <laughs> right. that's somebody that's not not in your neighborhood. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? They're, right. They're they're overseas just scamming you out of your gift cards and cryptocurrency. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. Stay vigilant. The important thing here is to recognize that this is a vulnerability that you have. Mm-hmm. I think just putting yourself in that mindset, like I need to get baby formula. I mean, because I cannot think of something more fundamentally urgent than the need to feed your child. Right. Right. And- the fact that there's a shortage going on right now, this presents a real opportunity for these scammers. People just need to be mindful that not everybody out there is is a nice person. There are scammers out there who are going to take advantage of this opportunity, and they really don't care who they hurt while they're doing it.
2: Yeah. No, it's a good reminder. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I would say also reach out if you have folks who have infants or, or friends who have infants, rather. Uh, just reach out to them and remind them of this sort of thing. Check in with them. Right, right. How you doing? <laughs> yeah. Do do. Is there anything I can do to help? Can I be the one who goes on that car trip to get the formula for you? Right, because I have the bandwidth and the means to do so. Agreed.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's always good to help help somebody near you. Yeah, I think that's the best thing you can do in terms of charity. Yeah, is you if you see a need that you can fulfill, fulfill that need. Absolutely.
2: All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from Information Age. This is an interesting one. It's titled, The Three Most Dangerous Types of Internal Users to Be Aware Of. And it's written by a gentleman named Nick Sarganson, who is a principal solutions engineer at Yubico.
1: Those are the ones
2: who make the uh, two-factor authentication hardware keys that uh, you and I are fans of. The YubiKeys. (laughs) That's right, the YubiKeys. Uh, And and this is really, it's it's sort of a mindset issue. And I think it's some good information here. It talks about how IT teams need to be aware of the different kinds of people who are in their organization. And there are three types of users here that, uh, that Nick Sarganson wants people to be mindful of. Is one of them a know-it-all? Uh, no, no, Joe, you're not on this okay. list. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's why I was asking, Dave. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, there are the cautious users, the traditionalist users— and the overachieving users. Ah, So we're going to go through each of these one at a time. Okay. The cautious users are willing to comply with new protocol changes, but they need some time to adjust. They may need more gentle encouragement than the typical user. They take more of a wait-and-see approach to new cybersecurity changes. And this uh, article points out this may be because they're afraid that changes could disrupt their workflow. And the problem with these people is if you have a security issue, let's say a patch or something like that, that needs immediate attention, these are the ones who are going to let everyone else do it first to make sure it doesn't blow up in their face. Yes. You know, this reminds me – Back in my, my previous life in the broadcast world and doing video editing and all that kind of stuff, you, there was a rule with software updates for you know like the video editing packages that we used professionally. It was never upgrade in the middle of a project. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. The problem was you were always in the middle of a project. Yes, of course. <laughs> so, but I, I so I understand this mindset, right? And I kind of take this approach with um, operating system updates. You know, let's say Apple comes out with a OS update for my iPhone or my Mac or something like that. I will usually wait a couple days to see whose devices get bricked first. Right, right. <laughs> I think waiting a
0: couple days is okay. Yeah, waiting uh, a month not okay. Yeah, uh, and uh, I'll I'll throw another reason why these users are cautious. You said cybersecurity policy. Very often, and I've seen this happen in my career a bunch of times. Yeah, somebody says, "Here's the new way we're doing things." Mm. Right. And there is a certain percentage of the population, and sometimes I've been in that percentage that says this is not going to last.
2: <laughs> right, <laughs> this right. will be
0: gone inside of a month. Right, and lo and behold, they're right. Uh-huh. So they don't even waste their time and effort doing it oh. until it, until they're certain that this process is is going to be the new way of doing things. Uh huh. You know what? I understand that mindset. Yeah, I think I think that's valid. But when it comes to cybersecurity things, we're going to start using two factor authentication a multi-factor authentication. Everybody's going to have a YubiKey. Okay. Right. Now it's time to get on board. We're doing <laughs> this. Right? right.
2: Right. Yeah. So the second uh, group of users are traditionalists. And uh, this article says, these users may ignore cyber training sessions, emails from IT, or avoid learning new authentication processes. Seeing these as unnecessary. Traditionalist users are generally hostile to change and often do not trust IT help desks Thinking that the processes for asking for help are too time-consuming because they do not engage with understanding how these new changes will directly impact their everyday workloads, some may either wait until the last minute before integrating the new security changes or resist altogether.
0: Maybe this sounds more like what I was just describing.
2: Yeah, I think, I think Somewhere it's in between, kind, of, yeah, kind of close to that. Yeah, but I, I see, I certainly, uh, I think we all know these people. Yes. Right?
0: I call them the belligerents.
2: <laughs> and then the last group is uh, the overachieving users. It says, these users may unintentionally cause issues by taking IT security into their own hands. <laughs> hey, this and, is
0: the know-it-all, Dave.
2: <laughs> <laughs> may feel they are too advanced to need help. I am in this article. (laughs) (laughs) Like like traditionalists, overachievers may ignore cyber training sessions, emails from IT, or avoid learning new authentication processes, seeing these as below their skill level. (laughs) You're awfully quiet over there, Joe. (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) However, this group of users is often overlooked when an assessment is performed, as through their own experiences, they may feel that the resources within the organization are not adequate. Being overachievers, they feel frustrated when IT help desks ask lower-level questions when trying to follow up or not prompt enough to respond to their requests for help. Yeah,
0: have you tried turning it off and back on again?
2: Yeah, this can lead these users to take it upon themselves to fix the problem, for example, mistakenly downloading viruses or malicious software posing as a credible IT resource. Now, that is not me. Although, uh huh. <laughs> <That, laughs> Although unintentional, that's what they all say, Joe. Right. Although unintentional, such mistakes may weaken the overall cybersecurity boundaries and undo or go against the new security policies their IT teams were wanting to implement. See, yeah, these folks are the ones who are, who are the ones who say, well, surely these rules don't mean me. <laughs>
0: See, that, that does sound like me, Dave. <laughs> that sounds I mean, that's the most Joe thing I think you've ever
2: heard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I mean everybody else has these issues, but I
0: I do have some tools that I like to download and install on my computer, but uh-huh. these are tools that I trust and they're tools that uh, and every time I, I do this, whenever I, – I, I've just gotten into this habit. Even though I have a virus scanner on my machine, yeah. when I download any tool that I'm about to install, the first thing I do is put it up on VirusTotal and see what Virus Total tells me. Right. Uh, which is a great website, by the way. You can upload anything. In fact, most of the time you actually don't have to go through the process of uploading it. Your web browser creates a hash of it and it sees that that hash is already in the, in the database and then just gives you a report on it. Yeah. So it's – it's really fast if, you've, if you're have if you scanning uh, software that is already in their database. Yeah.
2: Well, this article points out that th- the key here is communicating with your users. Correct. And I agree with this. Yes. Uh, in fact, I'll, uh, a story I'll share from my own life is um, you know, we do security awareness training with our team here at the CyberWire. And I was pushing back on a little bit of it, particularly the social engineering stuff for me personally because I thought to myself, you know… I'm kind of up on social engineering stuff. I host a show about social engineering. Right. You know? So so how is this worth my time? Uh, and it was explained to me, well, yes, you may know, you know, you you're probably ahead of the average person or user or employee when it comes to this stuff. However, there is value in us as a company being able to say that every single one of our employees has been through this training. Correct. So just if you need to come at it from that point of view and once it was once it was explained to me that way I was like oh okay you know I I, I see this is how I can contribute to the success of my organization by doing this it's not so right. much about me learning the stuff it's about being a team player right you know all that kind of stuff yeah and then you know I got my hackles down and I wasn't so uh, belligerent about I, it. <laughs> it
0: it is it is people in our position, particularly about the social engineering training you're talking about or about cybersecurity training, if if I was on the receiving end of cybersecurity training, I'd be like, do you know who I am, right? Yeah. It, 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 but that, that's the wrong attitude to have. Even, you know, especially, even though, yeah, we may know things, but for all the reasons you say, don't feel insulted about this. Right. Okay? There's things that have to happen. Yeah. Yes. By the way, I want to say Nick Sargenson is indistinguishable from James Spader. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I was looking at the bottom of the article where they have a pic- picture of Nick. Yeah. And I'm like, why is James Spader in this
2: article? <laughs> okay. The very handsome and lovable James Spader. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. We will have a uh, link to this story in the show notes. I think this is a good one. Uh, one of those ones is probably worth uh, sharing around with some of your IT folks. Uh, a-, a good article here from Information Age. All right, Joe, those are our stories. It is time to move on to our Catch of the Day.
0: Dave, our Catch of the Day comes from Josh. This is the same Josh. And he (laughs) writes, this is a girl I know. Her account must have been hacked. It was either hacked or cloned. This is a Facebook Messenger exchange. They even Photoshopped the check with her fairly recent address. Hmm. The grammar is a little bit off, The date format of the check is not in the normal one we use here in the U.S. Hmm. I look for this a lot in a fake social media account, and uh, I had a little fun with it, but I think they got bored. Uh, So, Dave, why don't you read this exchange?
2: All right. So this starts out. It's a message from someone claiming to be a woman named Erica, Mm -hmm. and it says, hello, have you heard about the DHHS financial support program going on now? No. No. Are there any good bennies? Department of Health and Women's Services for Home Care and Family Support. I got approved for 13900 form the program. If you want, I can share you the link to apply. Yes, please. And then they share the link and it says, click the link, say I would like to apply for the program. Message them now because I don't when it going to end. <laughs> Show me a receipt
0: of the money you got. And then I, there's a check. There's a, a a check. Now we'll get to the picture check. of a check. All right in in the back, He says, "Nice. Now you can pay me back the five hundred dollars I loaned you for that cosmetic procedure.
2: I already used mine to pay my old bills and get a new apartment. All in two days. Plus, remember,
0: no one will rent to you since you burned down your last apartment. <laughs> <laughs> but Dave, I want you to take a look at this check. Yeah, okay. It's in the next picture down. Oh, the, all, right. The all right. Oh, yeah, there um, it is.
2: Hmm, it is." Now, oh, that is some high quality Photoshop. That's right. <laughs> this looks like someone downloaded GIMP or maybe just used uh, Windows Paint. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, yeah.
0: and type some name. Like, I think that's Times New Roman font. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And it looks like a Chase check, like yeah. that somebody just had a picture of and mm-hmm. put this in there. Yeah. It's wow. uh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's really bad. It's really awesome, though. I love it. And uh, thank you for sending that in, Josh. I really yeah. appreciate it. This is a good one.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like for us to consider for our catch of the day, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at com. Right, Joe. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Ryan Kovar. He is a distinguished security strategist at Splunk, and we were talking about ransomware. Here's my conversation with Ryan Kovar.
1: The reason we decided to investigate this question around ransomware encryption speeds is, frankly, it was a question we didn't have an answer on, which sounds like a pretty easy place to start. But when we kind of looked at the world of ransomware and what our team focuses on, which is non-traditional strategic cybersecurity research, We tried to find the questions that people hadn't answered yet. And one of the things we just couldn't find a lot of evidence on was actually how fast ransomware encrypts. We hear a lot about the dwell time. We hear a lot about the number of dollars behind each encryption and decryption and negotiations. But one of the things we just had a question on was, well, how long do you actually have once ransomware starts? And oddly enough, when we started investigating, the only place that we could find actual sort of pseudo scientific evidence was from ransomware families themselves so we decided that was a pretty good place to start and that's where the research began
2: yeah that's interesting i mean when the when the folks who are out there uh, you know selling some of these ransomware packages as a service is that part of their value proposition that they they tell you hey we're we're faster than the competition
1: actually 100% lockbit ransomware when you go onto their onion site they actually have this beautiful chart where they cite the system specs that they use, they actually provide the binaries of each ransomware family that they tested against, and then the encryption speed and the worming capabilities of all the other 30 families they tested against. Now, surprisingly, Lockbit comes out on top for their testing, but uh, that's actually a bit of future research we're doing, which will be a one-on-one comparison.
2: And so let's walk down this path together here. I mean, how did you go about testing
1: this? Sure. Well, the first thing we did is we started off with a hypothesis, which is why are we even bothered doing this? And part of what we wanted to determine was, do organizations have enough time to respond once a ransomware encryption starts? Meaning, can you get in and you know turn off the computer or reboot it or run some sort of AV test or something to remove the ransomware? And that was kind of where we started. So the first thing we found was, on average, uh, according to the Mandy m trends report of 2021 ransomware families have about 3 or sorry ransomware adversaries spend about 3 days dwell time on a system so or on the network so they have a pretty long time in a network before they actually execute the ransomware binary so we started there and tried to figure out okay well once they've done that how fast do you have once they execute the ransomware binary and to do that we wanted to make sure we had some good blind testing or rather scientific testing so we stood up two different operating systems Uh, Windows 10, and I believe the newest version of Windows operating system for server. And once we actually ran those, we put them in two different specs for each operating system. So we had four different spec systems, a high spec system and a low spec system by operating system, uh, which is a lot of systems, now that I say that out loud. (laughs) Finally, we took a... Variety of ransomware families, and then we took from those ransomware families, we took 10 ransomware binaries associated with each family, as identified by Windows uh, Defender AV and Virus Total. So we ended up having 100 ransomware binaries from 10 separate families that we ran across four different systems of different varieties, and then we used median and uh, mean to kind of average that all out and find out what was the average ransomware encryption per family, and then just overall ransomware speed. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it was months so, of
2: work.
1: <laughs> well, let, let's, let's dig into some of the results then. I mean, what what are, what are some of the things that stood out to you? Um, the most fascinating thing to me was, let me bring up my notes here so I don't miss anything, that the average time uh, to encrypt for across a corpus of all files was 42 minutes and 52 seconds. So that's one other thing. This is against about 100,000 files or about 53 gigs of data. These files were taken from a open source repository of DocX and, you know, Windows documents, PowerPoint documents, text files, very much representative of a normal person's desktop. And so the median time for all these ransomware variants was 42 minutes and 52 seconds. Uh, But that Hmm. could be anywhere from four minutes and three, basically four minutes or three and a half hours uh, in between individual samples. So that was one of the fun findings that we had. Uh, Another one was that we were really expecting uh, that hardware speeds and capabilities would show a linear increase. So, you know, if a ransomware Mm -hmm. sample took 10 minutes to encrypt on a slow processor and slow memory, that it would take maybe five minutes if we doubled the capacity. And that wasn't always true. Uh, Some of the ransomware binaries weren't able to actually take full advantage of multi-threaded processors or increased memory or uh, other hardware specs. So that was one of the other interesting findings we had.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, is this is this a case where they're they tend to stay uh, you know CPU bound, or are they not uh, checking out to see if you have you know GPU horsepower at your disposal?
1: That appears to be our hypothesis going forward. One thing I will say is we intentionally try to not use the skills of reverse engineer on this. Part of the team that I run, Surge, uh, we have a, a fun tagline: of blue collar for the blue team." And there's so many great reports written by incredible reverse engineers with Ida Pro screenshots and all these wonderful things. But a lot of times for the average blue teamer, that doesn't really resonate for them or they don't know how to read those. So what we wanted to do is make sure we didn't introduce that sort of knowledge bias into the research and just did this of what we could observe. Uh, So some things we did miss a greater view on is, you know, was it trying to access GPUs? Uh, But what we, we did see, if we gave GPU processor cycles available, they didn't take it. Or if they had more CPUs, they didn't always utilize them.
2: So, I mean, is this a case where having, uh, you know, the the latest, greatest, most powerful system might not be to your advantage if someone hits you with ransomware?
1: It really depends on the ransomware variant from what we can tell. Uh, Some were able to use the faster processors. Some weren't. Um, For the most part, I would say the faster your systems, the faster uh, you would encrypt it. You know, as one person pointed out, uh, if you have 100,000 files and the last one gets encrypted at three hours and the first one gets encrypted in three seconds, you're still encrypted. So it doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter.
2: Yeah. So what does this indicate to you in terms of detection? Um, Is it the sort of thing where you're going to have great benefit by having something in place that is looking for encryption taking place on your system, for
1: example? My personal belief is no. What I think what this helps defenders find is that, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of history. And if you look at World War II and the Pacific Theater for America, uh, one of the big things we did as a military was the island hopping campaign. And you don't, you don't try to tackle tough nuts you can't crack. And I think mm-hmm. what we see here is this research gives that fundamental data and knowledge to an organization to say, hey, if we have, you know, 100 cyber bucks and we can spend them anywhere, once encryption starts, It's kind of like gangrene on a limb. You're probably going to lose that system. So where can you actually start defending more effectively? And for me, what this research reveals is that you can move left of that boom, as we would say, right? So instead of focusing detections just on finding ransomware, which still has a lot of value, I'm not knocking that, but I would argue that there's a lot more benefits to an organization by moving left and trying to find ransomware operators before they come in and actually place the ransomware binary which is one of the new things that we kind of, I wouldn't say new, but one of the things we really identified as we broke our own biases on this research is modern ransomware adversaries pretty much emulate the nation state APT adversaries that I've spent my career defending against. And so they do reconnaissance, they do lateral movement, they establish persistence using a wide variety of tools like Cobalt Strike. And by the time they actually get to the point of running a ransomware binary, they bring that ransomware binary over is the very last step. So there's a great piece of work by CERT New Zealand. Uh, they released a white paper earlier this year where they have something like 13 different stages of the ransomware life cycle, And you can actually identify, detect, and mitigate and defend against that ransomware adversary of any of those 13 places before they get to running ransomware. So that's really what I come out of this with is it's hopefully this research and this data gives network defenders the confidence to move left and try to find these adversaries before they actually execute the ransomware binary.
2: You know, my my recollection is that we've seen reports along the way that a lot of the decryptors for these ransomware packages are are kind of substandard. That, you know, it seems like maybe that's not where they put their energy and their efforts. Uh, I, I know that it wasn't the focus of your research here, but I'm curious you have any, if you have any insights on that.
1: I love to have more insights on that. That's actually one of the places we're looking at putting more research in over the next year. Uh, there are some difficulties of just having to have an active ransomware encryption and uh, Bitcoin to pay ransomware decryptions, but it's somewhere that we're looking forward to experimenting in the next year. I see.
2: So what, what are the take-homes here? I mean, recommendations in terms of people preparing themselves, their organizations against the threat of ransomware, based on what you've learned here, what are you recommending?
1: Really comes down to a couple key points, if I can be so brief. The first is that At the end of the day, you're not going to probably stop ransomware once it starts. So you need to have a good recovery plan or you need to have a good prevention and detection plan. And this data that we're providing in the report gives you that evidence to have that tough conversation. A lot of folks want to say, let's stop this in the middle. I would argue you can't. So move left or move right. Uh, We talked to some organizations and they said, hey, this really helped us make that decision of we're going to invest a lot of time and money in insurance and recovery and disasters recovery and backups, and we're also going to put a lot more work on hunting and detections for our threat intel team and hunting team before, and they're just kind of abandoning this idea that once ransomware starts, they can stop it. And if that's the only thing people get out of this research, I think that's a huge advantage.
2: Help me understand, when, when a ransomware team, you know, gets access to an organization's network and they decide that it's time to, you know, throw the switch and start encrypting things Do they try to hit multiple systems simultaneously or or are they, as you said, sort of island hopping? Are they doing one at a time? Is it a parallel thing
1: or is it serial? So this is a fantastic question because it kind of struck to some of the biases that I started the research with, along with the actual primary author of the research, Shannon Davis. Um, And one of the things we both kind of went into this with is, oh, ransomware worms. And what we're going to find here is all this ransomware that kind of moves laterally across SMB or is actively going to be finding vulnerabilities. And in the samples we tested, we actually didn't see a lot of worming. And so as we started to figure out how does this ransomware spread in a network, we started reading a lot of incident response uh, reports, looking online, following Twitter threads, talking to friends who have fought and defended against ransomware attacks. And the reality is, in a modern-day ransomware incident... Adversaries come in using spear phishing or a typical vulnerability or something similar to that. They use valid credentials to enter a network. They do internal reconnaissance. They move laterally using PS exec, all sorts of tools like that that you would expect. And then they find the data that is the most valuable to an organization And the way I've described this before is it's kind of like um, someone rigging a building to blow. You don't put one giant bomb in the middle of the building. You find all the key supports of the building, and you put on smaller bombs. And in this case, the ransomware binaries are actually being deployed on key systems that have that key data uh, that they're trying to encrypt. They're no longer just trying to encrypt everything on every hard drive. That still happens. But more specifically, the larger ransomware events that we're hearing about in the news is that they're encrypting the file server or the payment server or the development server. And then they're doing this double bounty, right? They're encrypting and then they're exfilling that data and they're saying, you either pay us to decrypt your system and if you don't do that, then we'll decrypt it ourselves and we'll blackmail you with your data being released publicly. Um, And that's only valuable if they're getting the data that has the most value to an organization. So... To make that a little bit more concise, you know, they're no longer just doing every system on every hard drive and the whole company. They're being very tactical and specific and taking the data that's most strategically valuable to an organization.
2: You know, I have to say it it seems to me like or it sounds to me like you and your colleagues here really uh, got a lot out of this particular effort. Like, you know, not only did you get a lot of information, but it sounds like you guys had a, a little bit of fun as well.
1: It was an absolute blast, and one of the things we love doing, we have a motto on our team, uh, fail less, and it's not meant to be negative, but what it's meant to say is, you know, every day you fail a little bit as a blue teamer, and your entire goal is tomorrow you wake up and you do a little bit better at what you missed. And this research kind of did that for us. We had these biases going in that ransomware was unsophisticated or that it wormed and that's the only way it spread and that ransomware was either incredible or horrible. And most of those got blown away in the work that we did, which is a fun part about doing you know, actual scientific research. The outside of it was we also came with all these areas that we're really intrigued and in working on. As I said, Shannon Davis leads this research, but he's also working with one of our new employees, Kelsey Bourne, and they're looking at one of the things we found was ransomware wasn't always packed. And in fact, as we looked more and more at ransomware, and talked to other people, we found a lot of folks have also been finding that ransomware is no longer packed. My bias, once again, coming from a nation state world, ransomware, or sorry, malware was always packed or had a packer used to confuse the, the compiling of the software. Well, this means that a lot of the detections that we've been avoiding for malware for years are actually now back in play possibly with ransomware. And so we have this huge corpus of data and Kelsey and Shannon are working through, can we use new fuzzy hashing algorithms to actually detect unpacked malware? Can we find out how much ransomware is actually packed or not packed? Uh, All sorts of areas like that that we're kind of excited to go into.
2: All right, Joe, what do you think?
0: Dave, I've always wondered how long it takes ransomware to actually do its physical damage.
2: Mm, you mean the, like the compression process, the encryption process? Yeah, the encryption process. Yeah. this
0: this study answers something that is important that I had. I have been wondering about this for for a very long time. Okay, uh, and I, again, I'm I'm fascinated by by this kind of stuff. I've got to get this report and read it. Uh, Lockbit has marketing data about their product and their competitor's product on their Onion site. Right. <laughs> That's amazing to me. I mean, yeah. was not, I shouldn't be amazed by it. We've been saying these guys are, are essentially corporations, large corporations. They're criminal enterprises. Yeah. Right? They run like businesses, except their products are illegal. That's right. all. Right. Lots of testing here. I mean, they tested 100 variants of ransomware. On four different kinds of computers, that's got to be at least four different ranso- or four hundred ransomware tests. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of data for for this kind of study, I would think. Yeah, uh, good good work on 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 this study. Uh, and th- those range in time from taking anywhere from four minutes to three hours. Four minutes for mm-hmm. a ransomware attack to be finished on a computer.
2: That's a bathroom break. Yeah, Joe.
0: <laughs> that's that is remarkably fast. Yeah, yeah. Now, granted, that's that's probably an outlier. Yeah.
2: but I mean. Combi- Still, three hours. I right. mean, if you have it kick in at one in the morning yeah. while someone's asleep or right. out of the office. Then that's when
0: these guys do this. Yeah. Because Ryan is talking about how these guys operate. You know, they're in they're in your network, they're doing the reconnaissance. Right. They know what your schedule is. Yeah. They know all this stuff. You're gonna show up in the morning and that's when your files are gonna be encrypted. Right. Right. Some of these ransomware developers are not taking advantage of, like, multi-threading CPUs or GPUs. Mm -hmm. These guys are producing barely sufficient software. (laughs)
2: All right? That's an agile design principle. Are you shaming the
0: ransomware developers? No, no, no. (laughs) No. Actually, barely sufficient software sounds like it might be a bad thing, but it's actually
2: a good thing. Oh, okay.
0: Right? You want the, the software that you have to spend the minimal amount of money Developing that does the work.
2: Oh, I see. Okay. Right, yeah. it's an
0: agile development principle. I That's see. what these guys are doing. Gotcha. Again, we're seeing we're seeing them following the best practices of the industry, right? And producing software that does the job for the least amount of effort. Ah, mm-hmm. it's great. I mean, well, it's not great. These guys are horrible, horrible people. <laughs> uh, about stopping the the encryption in process. One file encrypted is is going to be bad on some level. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's not going to take any time at all to encrypt one file. The exfiltration part of it, uh, I don't know if it happens before or after. Ryan says it in his interview, he seems to – in this interview, he seems to indicate that they'll exfiltrate the encrypted data and then decrypt it. If they're in there for a short period of time, probably. But if they're in there for a month, they've already got the data. Right. They never encrypted it. I think he's absolutely right uh, when he says you need to move to the left of this event. Mm -hmm. And I hate that term, move to the left. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's it's very jargony. Yeah. But, I mean – the first couple of times I heard it, I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. Right? It just means get out in front of it, right? And on the timeline, if you're looking at the timeline flowing from left to right, yeah. you need to be out in front of this they before say, Left happens. of boom. Left of boom. Exactly. Yeah. These guys are doing everything that APTs do. And encryption is just the last stage in the breach. And this is a breach. Mm-hmm. Just about every time. Somebody has breached your network. You have no guarantee they haven't exfiltrated tons of data, even if you just, they're just doing a ransomware attack. Yeah. You have no, no unless you can forensically demonstrate that didn't happen. Uh, and unless you have the logs that show that, and even if you do have the logs, they may have gone through and changed the logs. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. Ransomware doesn't really worm. Uh, you know, Worming is a malicious behavior from software that allows it to move around the network on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Generally, viruses require somebody to move a file and then activate that file or use that file for them to run yeah. and then spread. But once once they've been activated, they spread on their own. But worms, worms don't require the human interaction. And ransomware doesn't work like that, according to this study. Mm. Installed individually by each person uh, or by the people on the computers they want to encrypt. Right. Uh, I think that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think the key point is of this study is you are not going to stop ransomware once it starts. Mm. It's By that time, it's too late. You, you've, you're now in the recovery phase.
2: Yeah. So part of your planning needs to be, what do we do if we get hit by ransomware? Right. What's plan B? Right. Uh, and— And Ryan makes an excellent point
0: here. He says you have two choices. You can move to the left and try to prevent it, or you can move to the right and just recover.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Right? Which, those are your options. Apparently, stopping it right in the middle of it happening is not really a good option.
2: Yeah. And I'd I'd also add those two are not mutually exclusive. They are not mutually exclusive. I would agree. You can do both.
0: As we say in uh, in the old security marketing industry, Belt and suspenders. Right. (laughs) Fashion faux pas, but a security must.
2: (laughs) There you go. All right. Well, our thanks to Ryan Kovar from Splunk for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilby. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.